What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Jay tells us about some of the stories we're looking at this week on This Week in FCPA. Major League Baseball lays down the hammer on the Astros. Are the Red Sox next? Tom's multi-part series, parts one, two, and part three, and his cognitive dissonance and explored in the FCPA blog. Mike Volkoff says it's time to move from reactive to proactive compliance in a three-part series on the corruption and crime and compliance blog. What do DOJ changes mean for the compliance practitioner? I will explore that in my weekly column on corporate compliance insights. What is the SEC enforcement network? Verity Winship explains an NYU's compliance and enforcement blog. Will the fraud section now refocus on commodities trading cases? Aitan Goldman tells us again in NYU's Compliance and Ethics blog. What are red flags? Jeannie Dietrich explains in Spin Sucks. And Harry Cassis, Cassin takes a look out for expensive watches in the FCPA blog. Uh, the trouble with transparency, Vera Cherepnova explains in the FCPA blog. How does Queen inform your compliance program? Hint, pressure. Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, takes a look on radical compliance. And finally, on the Compliance Podcast Network, Tom continues his 31 days to a more effective compliance program series. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, back with Mr. Monitors. Yes, Jay Rosen himself. Another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 188. The week ending January 20, 2020, the Say It Ain't So Joe edition. Uh, Jay and I are back to consider some of the top compliance and ethics stories that caught our collective eyes over the past week. Of course, we're going to talk about the Major League Baseball sign-stealing scandal, which has embroiled the Houston Astros, will probably embroil the Boston Red Sox and led to the New York Mets firing their newest manager before he managed one game. Jay, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, it isn't quite often, but it, I guess it happens more and more than we'd like it to, that we can talk about ethics, compliance, corruption, and baseball. So uh, I know you started blogging about this this week. If there's anybody who's been hiding under a rock or watching the uh, pageantry of the impeachment pageant, uh, why don't you uh, tell us about the uh, the beginnings of this latest scandal for MLB. So, Jay, in about 2015, MLB went to uh, replay and allowed coaches to request uh, replay of certain uh, uh, calls on the field. And uh, MLB put a camera in center field to give a good look or another angle for the umpires to review. And uh, they allowed the teams to have monitors in their clubhouse to see the replays to determine if they wanted to challenge a play. So that was the uh, innovation. What MLB did not uh, fully appreciate the risk of was that teams would then take that feed 
and start to use it to obtain other information, like the signs the catcher was giving. Uh, the Astros took that one step further, uh, and perhaps the Red Sox did as well, by taking that information of the uh, signs communicated from the catcher to the pitcher and then communicating that decoded information to the batter. So in the Astros' case, it was decidedly old school. Uh, They banged on a trash can lid with a baseball bat, Uh, one for fastball, two for uh, curveball or a changeup. Boston uh, was, you know, as a hub of high tech and, of course, the home of uh, Harvard University, uh, MIT, Boston College, Boston University, they communicated via an Apple Watch. So um, much more interesting. Uh, no word from Apple on the uh, application of their watch or the risks that they predicted from that. Um, but uh, after the Apple Watch scandal broke in September of 2017, MLB issued an edict in the form of a memorandum which said, thou shalt not use technology to steal signs. Um this was the first time MLB had put this in writing. So uh, all clubs were on notice on this. This memo was sent to all clubs. And thereafter, if a company, company a baseball team engaged in that conduct, they'd be violating an MLB rule. The Astros continued to utilize their system in 2017, winning the World Series. In 2018, uh, Astros bench coach Alex Cora, who was the leader of putting this sign-stealing scheme together, moved over to become the manager of the Boston Red Sox, and he took his uh, technological innovation to the Red Sox. And then the Red Sox uh, used that sign-stealing technology going forward. Interestingly, the Astros continued to use it in early 2018, but abandoned it for the incredibly uh, banal business reason that it wasn't helping the players anymore. So uh, technological innovation uh, was overtaken by uh, facts on the, on the ground. So the Astros quit using it. Uh, move flash, fast forward now to after the Astros lose the 2019 World Series. Yes, Lisa, fine. We lost it. You guys didn't win it. Sorry. Um, the, uh, uh, a former Astro player gave an interview to The Athletic Magazine where he identified this sign-stealing um, uh, scheme and system. Uh, Major League Baseball uh, investigated, and this week they laid down uh, the harshest penalty uh, probably ever, uh, at least since 1919, where the Astros were fined $5 million. Uh, The general manager and field manager, general manager Jeff Lunau and field manager A.J. Hinch, were both suspended for a year. Thereafter, uh, they were fired by Houston Astros owner Jim Crane, um, Alex Cora, was uh, fired or at least uh, mutually left the Red Sox employed this week. Today, as we're recording, uh, the other Astro player identified in the MLB report, Carlos Beltran, uh, was let go and fired by the Mets. He had gone on to manage, uh, signed to manage the Mets, had not yet actually managed a game. So uh, the Red Sox are still under investigation. We do not know what penalty, if any, uh, they will sustain although we have to note they are now a two-time loser and recidivist, having uh, been sanctioned for the Apple Watch imbroglio, which led to the memo, which led to making this illegal under 
baseball wall. So uh, that's where we are, Jay. Uh, I'm in the middle of a um, multi-part exploration of this. Uh, I am uh, trying to sort out uh, my feelings as an Uber Astro fan and the compliance evangelist, and I wrote about that uh, for the FCPA blog. I'm not sure it's up yet. Um, but, um, you know, you've now lived through Spygate. Uh, you've lived through uh, Deflate uh, Gate. Uh, you're now living <clears throat> through Corrugate. Um, I, what does this mean, if anything, uh, for the Red Sox? Uh, well, it's it's a good question, Tom. Before we went on air, you and I were talking about some milestones in uh, cheating controversies uh, with MLB. And, uh, I mean, on first blush, it's Spygate all over again, especially with the fact that the league is specifically warning teams or warning managers who think they know more than everyone else not to do it. So uh, uh, there is a shirt that says Boston City of Champions, and I'm wondering if some young entrepreneur might change that into City of Cheaters. And uh, we need to just look in the closet and see uh, if the Celtics and Bruins try to uh, compete with their other uh, major league brethren. I'm wondering what we'll find in there. So I'm Equally disappointed, Tom, I know in your part two, you started to take a look at the corporate culture of the Astros. Did you want to touch on that a little bit before we leave this uh, subject? So in addition to the violations that occurred, the Astros uh, have had for some time just an incredibly toxic corporate culture, Jay. There was an incident in uh, during the playoffs where Assistant General Manager Brandon Taubman uh, screamed an insanity, which, uh, as this is a family show, I will not use. Um, had some female reporters, uh, basically around Roberto Osuno, who was uh, obtained by the Astros, uh, even though he had a domestic violence charge against him, and the Astros allegedly had a no um, no tolerance policy for that. Um, uh, the Astros at first denied that he said it, then they uh, uh, affirmatively claimed that the female reporter. Uh, working for uh, Sports Illustrated had made the story up. Uh, don't ever say a reporter made up a story, particularly when there are about 50 witnesses. Uh, and they got hammered over that, rightly so. And uh, then they uh, took about a week, and finally Jim Crane sent uh, the reporter a letter. Um, Lunau, during the entire time, uh, maintained the Astros had done nothing wrong. Uh, there were several other instances of uh, pretty bad culture uh, from prior years. I've thought about the and whether those indicators are a part of the overall problem. I, I've not come to a conclusion on that. As I said, they were several years ago, and they were when the Astros were intentionally tanking uh, to give them high draft choices, which they successfully turned into some of the greatest current players in the game. So, um uh, but the uh, MLB identified just a toxic culture and uh, at the uh, Houston Astros. So uh, when you talk about culture, when your colleague Eric Feldman talks about culture, uh, we have a prime example of a baseball team that completely lost its way with uh, not, a, not just winning at all costs, but winning over everything, uh, including uh, following the rules. So, um Culture really mattered in this case, and the Astros had a huge failing of it. 
So uh, in addition to something else that we think really matters, uh, we're going to turn our uh, eyes over to Mike Volkoff, who's in the middle of a three-part series, and he's looking at it, uh, the move from reactive to proactive compliance. What's Mike thinking about? So um, a really interesting set of articles by Mike, as always, uh, three-part series, uh, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, in part one, he talks about how compliance really needs to think about uh, the change to move from simply uh, reactive to proactive, uh, to move from detect to protect to uh, from detect to pr- uh, protect to predictive to prescriptive, uh, and then uh, make that kind of change and then communicate that throughout the organization. The second is the CCO really needs to change as well. They need to change their outlook. They need to be uh, one of the most, uh, in fact, he called it the builder of bridges in the blog post title, and that absolutely encompasses what Mike thinks a CCO needs to be doing is bridge building to other corporate functions. And then in uh, part three, he talks about technology and how the use of automation is really changing the uh, role of the CCO and that the CCO is going to have a whole new set of responsibilities, uh, even assuming they sit in the uh, C-suite and are adequately resourced and fully empowered, that uh, the CCO is going to have not only to implement real-time assessment and monitoring, but then to refocus that to drive greater uh, business efficiencies. So uh, interesting set of articles, uh, and every CCO needs to really consider these, Jay. Great. So uh, next up, I'm starting uh, a new series on corporate compliance insights. And uh, as we move ahead in the ethics and compliance world of 2020, uh, this month I decided to look back at some DOJ policy announcements And uh, specifically, I'm going to dive into the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. This was announced back in November 2017 and considers, again, what proactive strategies companies can use based upon the roadmap given by the Benskowski memo and policy announcements. Over the next five blog posts, I will explore what companies can do both internally and externally to incorporate the Benskowski memo, the memo, and other DOJ guidance into organizations to show how to use the MO as both a sword and a shield and the benefits of using a third party to fulfill compliance mandates. In today's post, I looked at the memo and the DOJ announcements and what they mean for the compliance practitioner. The memo itself, uh, really just as a recap of uh, laws and um, policy that's been in effect since uh, the last 20 years in terms of how we go forward and hire a memo, uh, excuse me, not a memo, a monitor. And the memo scope goes far beyond monitor selection alone. Regarding monitor selection, much of what the memo said is not new, but an articulation of writing and what happens in the ongoing process. The memo then goes on to provide some detail on what those situations might be going forward and also memorialized our DOJ practices around monitor selection. The monitor, or rather the memo, keep doing this, uh, spells this out very clearly. The DOJ can select from three candidates proposed by the company or they can evaluate alternative candidates. There is also the establishment of a new selection process with a standing committee at the DOJ rather than just the deputy attorney general. The memo can be viewed as an extremely positive force for not only corporate compliance programs, 
but also for the compliance practitioner. The evolutionary scope of the DOJ has been moving toward this as far back as 2012 uh, with the initial FCPA guidance. Uh, in terms of compliance practitioners, they can take heart that the DOJ is listening to companies that have been complaining about costs and, in some cases, the adverse impact of monitors. Yet this process can also be viewed as an evolution of thinking about the positive impact a monitor may have. The memo highlights the objective of creating a stronger ethics and compliance program and remediating controls as one of the considerations of whether or not a monitor is necessary. And I next week, I'll be back to talk to you about how we explore companies that can leverage this information internally. So, Jay, um, next up, we had, I thought, a really interesting article from uh, over at the NYU um, uh, Compliance and Enforcement blog by the interestingly named Verity Winship. And she wrote an article, I assume it's a she, but perhaps I should not be so bold. I don't need to be binary. The author wrote about uh, the SEC's enforcement network and posing the question, what do the Hampshire Constabulary, the Texas Railroad Commission, the city of Chicago, and the FBI all have in common? And the answer is that in a recent enforce SEC enforcement action, the SEC uh, thanked them for the assistance they provided to the agency regarding a securities enforcement action. So um, clearly the SEC is using networks that we might not have thought of uh, that they would utilize for a public company securities enforcement action. So uh, it, it takes a look at something that's hiding in plain sight, Jay. Uh, the SEC and the DOJ uh, talk about who has provided uh, assistance to them in, in every um, press release around an enforcement action, and it really drives home the point point of the both the domestic and international uh, in cooperation around enforcement. Certainly in the FCPA world, we've seen this, but think about that in terms of a U.S.-based security enforcement action when the Hampshire Constabulary is helping the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. So uh, for those uh, uh, who worry about cross-border crime, this is, uh, I think, something that can uh, really uh, give us some uh, pause to uh, 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 calm down and, and understand that uh, the regulators are, are out there as well. So uh, we're going to double dip and go back into NYU's compliance and enforcement blog. Uh, today we hear from Zuckerman Spader's Aiton Goldman. And Aiton asked, is the fraud section going all in on commodities cases? Uh, back in May of 2010, in what became known as the flash crash, the Dow Jones fell almost 10% before recovering much of that loss within an hour. Years later, a whistleblower who had analyzed market data filed a report with the CFTC identifying the market participant in the S&P 500 E-mini as the major cause of the flash crash. The CFTC investigated and identified the actor as Anav Serraro, a trader who had been spoofing the market from the basement of his mother's flat in uh, suburban London. Uh, the Commodity Exchange Act of a Act has brought the fraud section of the U.S. Department of Justice, DOJ's Crime Division, and the fraud section and the CFTC pursued the investigation with vigor. And in 2015, Mr. Sarrow 
whom the British tabloid subsequently nicknamed the Hound of Hounslow, was arrested by Scotland Yard. Sarrow ultimately uh, pleaded guilty. This Sarrow case intensified the relationship between the fraud section and the CFTC's Division of Enforcement. And since that time, an attorney for the Enforcement Division has been seconded to the fraud section. It's hard to overstate that, <coughs> pardon me, it's hard to overstate the significance of these developments to the future of criminal enforcement of the CEA. And that law makes any willful violation of its provision a felony. This relatively minuscule size of the CFTC directly impacts the number of criminal commodities cases that are charged because CFTC enforcement finds evidence of egregious misconduct. It generally infers these matters to the criminal authorities as they did with the Sorrell case. But since the fraud section stood up its anti-spoofing task force, it's able to generate its own matters. And unlike the CFTC, the fraud section is not lacking for resources. After a decade of explosive growth, there are now 150 prosecutors in the section. And the new unit has devoted to commodities frauds, meaning that future cases won't be confined to the anti-spoofing section of the CEA. So it's eminently reasonable to expect an uptick in both numbers and variety of the criminal CEA cases coming out of the fraud sections. We probably won't start seeing criminal prosecutions for willful violation of positions limits or other regulatory sections and statutes. But it's pretty clear that the fraud section is now going to be confined, is not going to be confined to the spoofing pen any longer. So, Jay, um, next up, we have a couple of articles on red flags, and they really uh, are from different angles, but I thought they were uh, interesting for the compliance practitioner. The first comes from my good friend, Jeannie Dietrich. Jeannie is in the PR realm, and she writes a great blog that I read every day called Spin Sucks. Um, And she wrote a blog entitled How to Spot Red Flags in a New Business Relationship. Uh, but it's really about spotting red flags in the interview process and some of the things that she looks for in the interview process to see if a prospective candidate can uh, would be a good uh, uh, fit for her culture and her team. Uh, she has a very inclusive culture, very accountable, uh, literally, uh, you know, one of the leaders in that area. Um, but she admits she has made mistakes and uh, she gives you a system to identify red flags, um, how to maybe dig deeper. Um, and I really hope that the compliance professional will read this and think about what do we need to do? What questions do we need to ask to make sure that someone would be not only a good technical fit for our company, but a good cultural fit for our company? If We go back to the culture we started with uh, on the Astros and how dysfunctional that was. Um, what can the interview process do to not only help weed out those who might engage in bribery and corruption or just be toxic in your workplace? So uh, an interesting article on red flags in the hiring process and business relationships. <laughs> Harry Casson over at the FCPA blog wrote about uh, red, uh, excuse me, expensive watches being a red flag. And um, he talked about not only can watches cost a considerable uh, amount of money, uh, <clears throat> multi-millions of dollars, uh, one that he pictured in the blog post, <clears throat> but how easily you can move them around. 
He said that, uh, so if a person is leaving a country or coming in uh, to a country and they have uh, $3 million in diamonds that in a loose pouch, that might raise uh, custom inspector's eyes and they may want to know what's the provenance of that. But if somebody comes in with a watch or two or three, if they've got uh, a few watches in their uh, uh, laundry, uh, excuse me, their luggage, uh, that might not raise any red flags or even any eyebrows. So uh, I found it a really interesting article. We have had multiple FCPA enforcement actions where Rolexes and other red, uh, expensive watches were part of the bribery schemes. And it uh, just reminds us that something as basic as a watch can be a FCPA violation. So next up, uh, we're picking up a blog from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And the blog is entitled Corporate Law for Good People. The uh, authors are Adi Liebsen from Bar-Ilan University, Yuval Feldman, who is also at Bar-Ilan, and Gideon Parchimovsky, who is a professor of law at where? The University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. Uh, their paper offers a novel analysis of the field of corporate governance by viewing it through the lens of behavioral ethics. It calls for both shifting the focus of corporate governance to a new set of loci, of potential corporate wrongdoing and adding new tools to the corporate governance arsenal. The behavioral ethics scholarship emphasizes the large share of wrongdoing generated by those who view themselves as good people whose intention is to act ethically. Their wrongdoing stems from bounded ethicality, various cognitive and motivational processes that lead to biased decisions that they view as either legitimate or justified. Uh, One of the authors recently completed a book called The Law of Good People that attempts to introduce the area of behavioral ethics to law, focusing on how law should deal with ordinary unethicality of good people whose behavior in various contexts, such as contract performance or hiring employee, is ethically bounded. From a behavioral ethics standpoint, there are various aspects in which the corporation is a perfect hub for situational wrongdoing. For example, in corporate settings, much of the wrongdoing does not benefit the individual, but rather the corporation. The paper boils it down into three main topics. The paper's assessment of corporate governance through the behavioral ethical lens is in three stages. First, it exposes potential ethical blind spots in which wrongdoing by good people might be more prevalent than previously assumed. Second, it suggests novel corporate governance interventions supported by behavioral ethics to address wrongdoing by good people. And third, finally, it identifies existing intervention and according to behavioral ethics analysis may generate unintended adverse effects on the behavior and well-meaning of well-meaning corporate officers and exacerbate wrongdoing instead of mitigating it. So uh, we link to this in the show notes, and there's a link that you can follow to download the whole article. Uh, Jay, next up we have an article by the uh, regular contributor to the FCPA blog, Vera Sharapanova. We have talked about her blog post in the past, and she had a really interesting one entitled transparency can cause more corporate crime. And this, at first blush, Jay, seems counterintuitive uh, because uh, certainly I and and perhaps you and others talk about the need for transparency in the light of day and that the light of day 
can uh, disinfect uh, corruption, uh, that transparency implies accountability and the uh, perception that uh, by being transparent, uh, one will uh, uh, be accountable to others. But what uh, she brings up is uh, counterintuitive findings of behavioral research is that transparency may lead to a diffusion of moral responsibility. Quite simply that if someone is transparent and they announce they're going to do an act and no one objects, there may be a tacit approval, or at least the uh, actor may believe that they have tacit approval to move forward with the um, um, action that they have so articulated. So uh, I found this really interesting, uh, something that I think we're going to have to be cognizant and aware of um, and really uh, tell people that uh, you've got to uh, speak up and uh, you have to give people safe places where they can do that. So it wouldn't be a week in the FCPA if we haven't uh, picked up something from our colleague in Boston. Uh, This comes to us from Radical Compliance from uh, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. Uh, This week, Matt decided to look at how pressure invades corporate culture. And uh, Matt has been writing about Boeing coming through the uh, end of 2019 and going to 2020. And he still thinks that Boeing uh, might be one of the biggest stories of ethics and compliance in the coming year. And uh, specifically, he's looking at a quote that came through the New York Times. And this came from a Boeing employee, uh, Boeing Chief's technical pilot, Mark Fortner. And he said, it's probably true, but it's the box we're painted into. Mr. Forkner said, citing the desire to keep training to a minimum, a bad excuse, but with what he's being pressured into complying with. So part of this uh, looks at the fact that Boeing was under market pressure to come up with a competitive airplane that would uh, go up against their European competitors and when when they ran into problems of trying to keep things simple, uh, there were certain uh, aspects to how the plane performed that they did not share with other people. And this made Matt think about uh, another corporate cousin uh, that had eerily similar situations, which was the corporate debacle in the 2010s uh, during uh, at Wells Fargo. Uh, That was another sprawling organization like Boeing that professed a strong commitment to ethical culture, yet everywhere employees felt a pressure to perform that degrades into misconduct. So Matt says that it's not like the shareholders and the board says, we want you to perform an unethical act to lead to profits, but that is the pressure that comes down upon them. And um, a couple of years ago, Matt coined something which he called the anti-fraud triangle. And uh, when he takes a look at, look at it, you've got culture that should be pushing back against the pressure from the board. And you also have values that should be pushing it back against uh, rationalization. Unfortunately, uh, as we hear more and more about the Boeing situation, we see that there was a real uh, corporate-wide failure on keeping up the ethics. And uh, as we boiled this down to in the past, Boeing's job is just to create safe airplanes to keep people alive. And instead of that, they uh, tried to figure out ways 
how to add to the bottom line. And uh, by not heading these things off in the forefront, they have now uh, lost billions of billions of shareholder value. Uh, they've lost two planefuls of people. And this is a, a morass that we'll just uh, we're going to keep following into the new year. So uh, the only thing I can add is uh, we've linked to the uh, Freddie Mercury version of pressure. And I suggest you read the blog post uh, both after listening to pressure and then uh, listen to it again after you've read it. So, Tom, uh, you have been continuing with your series of 31 days to a more effective compliance program. Uh, Which topics do you touch on this week? So, Jay, on Monday, we looked at or I looked at institutional justice. On Tuesday, I considered risk assessments. Wednesday, I uh, suggested how you can evaluate a risk assessment. Today, I looked at or rather Thursday, I looked at uh, the third party risk management process. And on Friday, I looked at how do you actually manage a third party after the contract signed? So uh, we are on day 16 of 31 days to a more effective compliance program. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce iTunes has accepted this podcast. Uh, so I've linked to the iTunes feed. If you want to just listen to 31 days to a more effective compliance program, as with all things, Jay, uh, you know, I have one switch on and off. And once I start, I can rarely stop. So my suspicion is that we will have other months down the down the road where we're going to be taking a look at specific topics of a best practice compliance program on my 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance po- Program podcast. Uh, I'm not sure Mrs. Compliance Evangelist is looking forward to it, but I certainly am. So I have uh, an event that we had in Los Angeles this week and another event that will be coming up in uh, Costa Mesa next Friday that I wanted to talk about. Uh Vin DiCiani, the founder and president of Affiliated Monitors, was in Los Angeles this week, and we got together with our friends uh, from Dow Jones Risk and Compliance. They brought in their assistant general counsel, Liz Potowski, and together Liz and Vin talked about uh, ethics and compliance, and we had a roundtable. I was assisted on this by uh, my colleague, Linda Justice, who's at Dow Jones, and we are graciously hosted by Mike uh, Heller. Uh, the roundtable went really well, and we're looking at rolling this out into other regions uh, throughout 2020. And next week, we have a Southern California one-day conference uh, from the SCCE down in Costa Mesa. Uh, there's still uh, time to sign up for it, and my colleagues uh, Eric Feldman will be presenting as long as long as with Mikhail. Rita Gordon. So it's a nice way to start January off to have a couple ethics and compliance uh, programs to get the tribe together and uh, look forward to seeing everyone in um, Costa Mesa next Friday. You want to take us home, Jay? Sure. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance and myself, Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 188 for the week ending January 17th, 2020, the Say It Ain't So Joe edition. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the stories 
that caught our collective eyes in the area of compliance and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.